Okay, welcome listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to the AFC podcast. Your friendly reminder that we are not just available on YouTube where you can see our lovely faces, which is the preferred method, because then you also get to watch the content our day player brings. We're also available on Apple or Google if you just want to listen or CastBox. And I'm Jim Galizia. I'm Victoria Fragnito, and today our day player is going to be Malka Wallach. She is an actor, a producer, filmmaker. She is the founder of Girl Gang Productions, and we're going to talk a little bit about their first project, uh, a short film called Klutz. Well, so, yeah, and also suggested for us as our movie to watch, the classic Titanic, the James Cameron film. It is a Titanic <laughs> movie. It really is. It's a pretty crazy movie. Um, yeah. And it's been a while since I've seen it, you know, because it, it's become such a cultural thing that, you know, after a while, you know, you become so inundated with it that you don't, You're like, you I, don't I, watch I, these I've seen it so many times already. I don't need to see it again. But for the podcast's sake, I watched it again because, of course, I go home and I tell my mother, hey, mom, I have to watch Titanic at some point for the podcast. And she grabs me by the shoulders and she's like, let's watch it now. I'm like, okay. Oh, okay. I guess we're watching it. Uh, that didn't really happen. But she was excited to watch the movie. We're excited. We sit down, we watch Titanic. And I was really surprised how much I enjoyed it when I like paid attention to it and really put thought into watching it. And like, I was appreciating it too, because it came out in 97. Is that right? Yeah. So special effects. At, at no point was I like, that doesn't look real. That looks fake. But special effects, they really stepped up in that movie. And we'll talk about it a little bit more later. We'll bring up Titanic. But how do you feel about movies that have been out a while and you watch them over and over again? Like, do you lose some of it when you revisit the movies for like the 15th time or something? I mean, I, I think it honestly depends on, on the film. If you're watching it 15 times over, then obviously you enjoy the film. So I think that you just end up finding... If, if it's a good quality film, you're gonna end up finding things that you missed along the way. You're gonna, you know, whether it be, you know, a, a mix up, you can see the boom in a shot or something like that. Or if it's, you know, little details that you know, never noticed before. Like when we were talking with Isaac previously on, our, on another podcast and he was talking about the movie Hot Fuzz and how he's watched it so many times that he's now picked up on these little instances of you know slight background noise that is perfectly timed to hit the joke at the right time that you wouldn't no notice on your first like your first view or your second view but on your 10th view you're probably going to notice those things and they're you know i i think that i don't it doesn't lose anything to watch it for the for the millionth time i what think it's just referred to in the industry as easter eggs Yes, those are sprinkled right. in. You start to pick up on those naturally when you see a movie for the 50 billionth time. And I don't know that Titanic necessarily has too many Easter eggs, but it definitely has things like every time you watch it, you kind of just appreciate the details more and more. Um, but let's, uh, let's bring Malka on. Let's talk to her and we'll get her opinion on it as well. And then we'll deep dive into it a little bit more. Let's bring her in. 
There once was a girl from Nantucket who kept her whole heart in a bucket. You got this. Got what? Life. But her sister twisted, pulled out of her wrist, and... No! Kids won't like this. It's sad. Well, as for her soul, she cut it. Here with Malka Wallach, actor, producer, creator extraordinaire. Hi, Malka, how are you doing? Hello, hello. I'm um, doing pretty well. Hello, hi. Well, a little nervous, you know, <laughs> like you do. So, uh, talk to us a little bit about um, how you got into the whole acting thing in the first place and then how that brought you towards Girl Gang Productions and, and all of that. Yeah. Um, I think, oh gosh, so acting sort of happened, um, I was like just like the biggest nerd of the I was like reading Shakespeare on the playground while everybody else was playing dodgeball, um, partly because I was a nerd and partly because I was very, very bad at dodgeball. And um, I remember, this is Titanic related, um, the same week that I saw Titanic in theaters, my parents showed me the 1968 Franco Zeffirelli, Romeo and Juliet, and I was just like, oh shit. <laughs> I can do this. Like, this is something people do. You don't just read Shakespeare, you perform it. And then Titanic was just like movie magic, um, which I had never experienced before. I think it was like also like my first like PG-13 movie in the theaters. And, so, um, and then it just spirals the way these things do and studied it in college and a little bit of grad school. And then Coming back from grad school, um, my husband and I ran a theater company for a short while called the Rogan Peasant Players. Um, and our idea was really just bare bones Shakespeare, but really it was about trying to be true or authentic to how we thought they might have been staged back in Shakespeare's day, um, which basically meant like concept free, except for like little flavors here or there. Um, and we produced one full-length show, which ran for three weeks, Henry V. Um, and we did, produced a bunch of workshops and a couple of readings of both Shakespeare and what we refer to as Shakespeare adjacent, so Shakespeare-inspired work, um, and a couple other little things. Um, and then, I don't know when it happened, but sometime in like the last six years, my love of Shakespeare didn't wane, but my frustration with the roles available for women sort of peaked. Um, and I'm a weird type as an actor because I'm small, I'm petite, I'm white. And so everybody's like, you should play the ingenue. But then I come into the room and I'm also tattooed and have purple hair and am weird. Yeah. And they're like, oh, we don't know what to do with you in the <laughs> classical world because we don't have any imagination. People didn't have purple. Um, at least that's how it sounds <laughs> in my head. And and that is that is that is true. And unfortunate <laughs> for them. Um, I think. 
but yeah, so it was just like a culmination of those frustrations and, and wanting to tell more diverse female stories and what does it mean to be a woman and what does it mean to be a girl. Um, and I read a novel by a woman named Robin Wasserman called Girls on Fire, which sort of like changed my life in a way. It was about these two girls in the early 90s who befriend each other and it's also a little bit murder mystery. Um, but like the murder, like that's all just the platform to explore like the power of female friendship and how volatile it can be, how beautiful it can be, how dangerous it can be. And I read that and I was just like, this, these are the, these are the stories that I'm interested in exploring as an artist. Um, but of course, as an actor, you don't get to pick which roles and which stories you get to tell. You, you go into a room, you audition, hopefully you like the part, hopefully if you like the part, you get the part, but like there's only so much control you have. And I actually reached out to Robin Wasserman and was like, I want to adapt your novel for the stage. Um, and we had a couple of meetings and ultimately it's like, I think in the works could be a film. So I did not get the rights, which was very sad. Um, but it sort of, like unknowingly at the time, it like sort of changed the course of my career and sort of both the work that I pursued as an actor and the work that I attempted to make and still attempt to make as a, as a writer and producer. Yeah. And then- On a different path, which is cool. Um, yeah. You've played both sides now. Do you, do you feel like you prefer acting or being on the other side of the camera? I think that I still, and I wonder if this will change after everything that's happening right now and there's been so little opportunity to be a performer and so, so much of my effort has gone into producing and into writing. Um, but I currently still primarily think of myself as like, it's like actor, producer, writer. Um, but I wonder, it might, you know, smush together. Um, but I love, I love acting for me, like, that's the part of the storytelling that I find the most compelling. Um, I prefer doing it on stage to on camera still because I love, you know, being being with the audience and, and and you know, unfortunately we can't do this right now, but like the spit and the sweat and the and the just the hearts beating, you know, in time with each other. Like that's just for me, that's why I do what I do is because I think in the room that's when story becomes empathy and we can like change things and and communicate with each other um so that's still my preference but i think it's yeah some stories are complicated for a stage uh it's mm -hmm. a certain there's a certain energy that you cannot convey if, if you're watching something on a flat screen you know it's just yeah there's, there's more depth to it and i think the word is energy because when you're sitting yeah. in the room and you just feel it it's just a different thing entirely um and i feel like that's actors start branching out victoria was an actor and then she started mm -hmm. writing and writing plays and things like that and i mean i was never <laughs> an actor but i mean people just start fabulous at all of them stretch their creative legs and branch onto both sides and now you have yeah. to be like acting for two months and then be like all right i'm bored of this i'm gonna go write something and put something of my own together. Yeah, um, for sure. Well, and I, I think that 
that when you are creating your own content, whether it's for you or not, as long if you're creating something that you're passionate about, you know, it's going to be on the same level as your first love, you know, of acting. Or yeah, whatever. for sure. For sure. I wrote another, I wrote another play that's being uh, developed right now. And I don't necessarily, there's a role I could fit, but I didn't write it like for mm -hmm. me, but I care mm -hmm. about the story. So yeah. it feels like the more that you get into, I just want to create more opportunities, one for women, um, and two, just to tell more stories that I care about. So I, I feel like all of this kind of just branches out into like this beautiful opportunity of, of creating more things that you love and you want to share the stories for. For sure. Mm -hmm. I think that like, as a writer right now, I'm, I'm mostly writing for myself. Um, because the inception, the idea, the first idea that I had that I was like, oh, I want to write this down. It, it's personal. And when it's that personal, it's hard to imagine other people in those, in that specific part, in that specific world. But the more that I write and the more ideas that I have, I'm like, oh, I want to write about this. But I'm also like, there's like about 3,000 reasons I will never play this part. Mm -hmm. And like being like, oh, but it's, it's not about me. Like, this is not the opportunity for, to push myself ahead as a performer. This is an opportunity for me to use my voice to push other people ahead and empower other people to tell these stories. Um, this is like adjacently related, but um, Denise uh, Go, um, she was in People, Places, and Things. Um, she, I think I'm pronouncing her last name right, but I might not be. Um, but she, she talks about after every audition, whether she booked the role or not, she sits in the audience and she watches the woman who got the role and she celebrates that woman's performance. And she mm -hmm. says to herself that like, at least there's a woman up there. The way that this woman is telling the story is significantly different than the way I would have done it. And the way that I would have done it doesn't necessarily exist in the world that the director and the other performers have put together. And for me, that's such a rare thing in our community. I think that, especially as actors, we're taught that there's only so much room at the table, especially as women. And instead of looking at your peers as your peers and as your collaborators, we're taught to like, you got to bring them down so you can move your way up. And I think that we have to start celebrating other female performers and other female artists in a way that is not about well, I want to do that. It's about, oh my God, they did that, which means there's room for me to do that, which means there's still room for that six-year-old girl who doesn't know what she wants to do yet, but might see the show. And I think for me, that's the power of, of producing and, and writing is that it's like, there's so many opportunities to support and empower each other and to sit in the room and be like, fuck yeah, lady, you killing it? Or however you say it in your brain. I don't know why that's how it came out, but it did, so. There we are. But like, you know, I just, yeah, for me, it's about, it's all in the last five years, it's really just been about how do we tell female stories and how do we, how do we tell them better? And, and how do I, even when I'm not telling stories myself, how do I support my comrades? And that's, that's awesome because a lot of time, I mean, as actors, male and female, you are taught to look at each other as, um, competition uh and then as you know you especially women 
trying to look at each other like, oh, if this person gets the part, then, you know, it, it just, it's so competitive and it's, it's harsh. So I think that's beautiful to be able to like go to another, go to that performance of that role that you didn't, didn't receive and be able to celebrate. That takes a lot of empathy and letting go that I think a lot yeah. of, it, it's hard, it's hard to, to get to that. It's point. hard. Yeah. It's very <laughs> hard. Um, there's been like so many times where I've been like, I want to be so happy for this person. And then there's still that stick inside that's like, yeah. And learning to unlearn what is, what creates that tick mm-hmm. and, and why you feel that way. And part of it is because you want, you want the work, you want to do the work, you want to tell the stories. And part of it is because we forget that we rise together, that that this woman's success is going to be your success in two weeks, two months, two years, five years, however long down the road, you know, it's, we're, we're all just lifting each other up. Girls are so so much better at that than guys are. Say that again? Girls are so much better at that than guys are. Because I I remember, I've sent in resumes and applied for certain camera jobs. And then the I didn't I didn't get it and then the film comes out and I'm like, look at this terrible movie. These guys. Like I'm just tearing it around. I'm like, ah ha ha, this movie sucks. It could have been great for me. But you know, that's a that's a great way to go about doing it. And I feel like that's a different vibe from most of New York, because I feel like New York's vibe is usually like if it if it's mine, it's only mine. Can't share it with other people. Yeah make it a thing for everybody. Um, I only visited LA a few times and the few people I spoke to over there, they were like much more communal and helpful. And I would try to show them a script and they'd be like, bring it, I wanna read it. And I'm like, really? Because nobody cares, gives a shit about anything I do in New York. That's so funny. Yeah. I never, like I've never been to LA and I know nothing about LA, but that somehow seems like the opposite of how I think about LA. So that's kind of, that's cool to like have those like um what's the word I'm looking for prejudices against LA sort of unravel a little it's exciting that that that, that's what happened I mean it's based on just my experience that's that's how I experienced it yeah yeah, yeah. uh it might also be different in front of the camera in LA so if you're acting might be more cutthroat in LA than it is here yeah not sure yeah, I definitely feel like with my writing, I'm always like when people are like, oh, let me read it. There's part of me that's like, but if you read it, you might steal my idea. No. <laughs> that's, that's the stage I'm in. Same movie. Say that again? You steal my script. That, yeah, that's like the weird paranoia that I have because I've only been doing it for a short while and I only have so much written that I'm just... <laughs> which, is, which is weird because it's the opposite of how I try to be as like as a producer and as a performer, but I'm just like... Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I obviously do share it with people because if you don't share it with people, you don't get feedback. And if you don't get feedback, you don't grow, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I feel like I should say that I do like, I'm not like magically like in the theater or watching a movie and being like, hail to the queen who got the part. Like it is a struggle. And like, I definitely also watch movies and I'm like, well, this is a piece of shit. So bullet dodge, like definitely like still in that mindset. It's sort of, but I, it's like, it's my current one of many current struggles in the industry to sort of ground myself and find my place. If that makes sense. 
It does. No, it does. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's good to acknowledge that it's not easy for anybody to have that mindset. And it's not easy to, to do that with every single role and every single project that you go out for and that you want. Um, so, you know, no one's perfect. And, you know, it's good to aspire to, to be that way. But, you know, it's not going to be easy for every single project. Yeah. So for, um, when did you start Girl Gang Productions? I started Girl Gang Productions. Um, oh, gosh. probably about a year ago, maybe a little bit more. Um, and it sort of stemmed out of, so wanting to adapt this novel, I went to my dear friend, Elizabeth M. Kelly, who was in the production of Henry V that Tim and I produced back in like 2015, 14. I don't know what time it is. Um, so it's all like sort of, the journey is all sort of connected in hindsight. Um, and I wasn't writing at the time when I approached, this is about two years ago, Robin Wasserman about wanting to adapt her, her novel. So I went to Liz, who's like one of the most talented playwright screenwriters that I know. Um, fucking genius. Um, I literally saw a workshop production of one of her shows and I left the theater like weeping. And I called my husband, my husband up and I was just like, uh, babe, I believe in theater again. Like it was like one of those experiences. Um, so I approached her to do the adaptation. And we had a meeting shortly after I found out that we would not be able to adapt it. And we sat down together and we were like, fuck, we should still do something. Like this shouldn't be the be all and end all. Um, and we chatted and we thought for a while we'd do some, we'd do theater because that's where we both lived at the time. And we were at a reading for a play of hers um, and actually her husband um, was like, you know, you guys should do a, a movie, right? You guys should do a short. And I was like, what? Me? Produce film? I don't know anything about film. I've been like living in like the classical theater bubble my entire life. And he was like, yeah, it'll cost about the same as a three week off Broadway run. And it becomes like a calling card, right? You always have it, it doesn't go away. It doesn't have the same ephemeral quality that theater does. And I was just like, where you <laughs> and, then, and then I was like, oh no, actually, fuck, yeah, we should do this. And so we sat and we were both in the middle of other projects at the time. Um, and then yeah, it was actually exactly a year ago that she started working on the script class which was the first film we did um and you know we wanted we knew we wanted to explore the female experience um we knew that we wanted to bend the expectations of what that narrative looks like um but we didn't know what we wanted the story to be and it sort of was a for a while and then it was b and then it was c and then all of a sudden i get a script and it's what class you know the beginning of what class is and she sort of pitched it to me as like i want girl with a superhero like she has a superpower but her superpower is that every time that she falls she changes like the traje trajectory of her timeline she basically like hops reality um, but she doesn't have any control over it and then that sort of morphed into what we have now which is about this woman dealing with grief the loss of her sister and every time she falls she's warped into a timeline where her sister is still alive um, and it deals with grief and it deals with female friendship and sisterhood um, all through the lens of this beautiful magical realism that Liz writes in. Um, 
and like I remember reading the script for the first time and just being like uh, it was more poem than script um and and then all of a sudden we had the first draft of the script and all of a sudden it was like and I'm sure if you guys we have produced stuff in the past like it seems really really slow and then you hit a certain stage and then all of a sudden it's like this is happening yeah so all of a sudden it was like oh is this going to be a one-off or are we going to make a company so that we can produce more than once and i was like well if we can do it once we can do it twice i mean except for the money thing but we can deal with that you know later um and so we started the production company and we called it girl gang production because of our commitment to telling female stories and um and then like uh we were doing like logo stuff and this is like tangent but i just um not a lot of people know about alice guy blachet um she was a french filmmaker um she was the first major she was the first female film director she's responsible for tinting which gave us colorized film she's responsible for so much she had the first major studio in America before Hollywood. Um, and I was just like, I was like, there's a not great documentary about her, but um, she was fascinating. And I was just, and it just was like one of those things where we were like, watch, I was watching it. I was just like, we don't know about her because she was a woman. And so all of her amazing accomplishments, which are, we still, we're still seeing the effects of today had been like sort of lost. She also produced the first film to have an all black cast. Like she's like this amazing woman and her company was called Solace and their, and it was in New Jersey of all places. Um, and their sign was like a, like a half sun. And so like, that's how we got the sun for our logo. Like just like the legacy of, of the female voice in film is so much deeper than we think of it as being. Um, I definitely feel like I'm on a weirdly strange tangent and I'm not sure how to get back to what we were talking about. Um, no, this is all connected to how you... This is how Girl Gang started to like come in. Um, and then once we had the script and we had the company, we booked for a director and we went with this amazing woman named Michelle Bossy. Um, she's was for years i think the associate artistic director i might that might not be her actual position I know. Um, but like for years hmm? I know. you know michelle with her before yeah i worked She's with her on a story for uh called miracle baby i was the camera assistant mm -hmm. uh really? great yeah i love her i'm obsessed with her um and she was like because she's a theater director as well like she has this amazing approach to the way she works with actors that I've not experienced on other sets, which was really wonderful. Um, and she just had all of these amazing ideas and just such vision. Um, and it was sort of like, it all just coalesced, like Liz, myself and Michelle, just making this little baby that, that is class that we actually just, it just finished post last week, um, which is really, really exciting. We have, we have the final product and I watch it and I, like it's such a mixture of like glee and like as a performer being like I must disassociate from my performance <laughs> it's horrible but it's not horrible but maybe it's horrible but it's just in my brain 
it's so I I don't know if you guys experienced that. If you I don't I know if you you act a little. I don't know if you ever have seen yourself and you're just like, why do I have to watch this? Uh, and I feel like I have a weird. I've I know some people refuse to watch themselves perform. Yeah. Uh, I actually I don't mind watch. It's not like I'm gonna sit here and like put my my you know projects on loop on the TV and just be yeah. like myself all day. But um, <laughs> I do. I just watch myself all day, every day. Nice. My ego is just like out here. Yeah. Love it. But I feel like um, I'm such a visual learner that yeah. by watching myself perform, I can see the things that like I'm missing when I'm in the moment. You know, like mm -hmm. that I have or. Um, you know, moments where I, I felt like I was coming across enough, but like I really wasn't. It was too internal. It wasn't far yeah. enough. I feel mm -hmm. like because I'm such a visual learner, I really don't mind watching myself. Sometimes it's rough watching like uh, like my reel or something like that, where I'm like, ah, I should have done that differently. Like I've watched it 50 million times. So now I'm like, oh, maybe I should have. But, you know, I think for the most part, I don't, I don't have a huge aversion to it because I feel like I learn a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's such a like wonderfully healthy attitude towards it. And I feel like I, I've like had to learn how to do that because, you know, when something is in post, you watch it so much, um, so much, <laughs> just, you, you like, like at so not much watching at not like, like eight times in an hour sometimes. I don't actually know if you can watch a 14 minute film eight times in an hour. I'm bad at math. But like, it just, that's what it feels like. You're just constantly berated with the same images. And when you're, and for me, when I'm like watching myself, it's like, it becomes really easy to like pick apart the performance. Mm -hmm. But the more comfortable I got with understanding the post procedure and like, what am I actually watching for while I'm watching this? I'm, I'm, I'm just listening to music right now. I'm listening to composition or I'm looking at the lighting or I'm looking at the VFX. Um, it became really, it became not really easy, but it became much easier to watch the performance with just this very different lens of like, your ego's not important. It's not about your performance. Your performance is a blip in the things that bring this movie together. And, but I think it took like being like, oh, okay, I'm actually learning how to do this to like put that in a drawer and it rattles sometimes, but. That's a tool that some, that like uh, film actors have that theater actors don't is that they can go back and watch themselves and see it again. Theater actors, you know, once the play is over and the curtain goes up, someone comes up to you and says, wow, you were terrible or you were great. And that's the only way you know. <laughs> and then yeah, evolve and people can, you need like an acting coach to actually sit down with you, I think. Mm -hmm. you're doing and theater. so often what people tell you is so different from the way you were you were experiencing the performance yourself. Like the number of times that like, I'm like Tim, poor Tim has witnessed this so much because we also shared the stage so much. And I'd like get off stage before like bowing and then like one of our shows and I'd just be like, well, that was fucking shit. And he'd just look at me and be like, what? <laughs> you about me? Like, it's fucking shit. And like somebody would come up to me and be like, great job, Mark. And I'd be like, smiling, but in my head it's just like, don't lie to me. I know the truth. I know what was on that stage tonight. Um, <laughs> So it's just like, it's just so hard to gauge while you're in it. Um, I mean, at least for me, I, I'm sure people with more experience and, and et cetera, et cetera, are probably better at it. But for me, it's very hard to 
to gauge other than like there are moments where I'm like, oh, I know that I was in it, but like never an entire performance where I'm like, I know exactly how that went, which is maybe, you know, maybe not a, maybe a good thing, maybe not a good thing. I don't know. Yeah. I personally feel like any actor that has been doing theater for so long should do a movie, should do a film, yeah. student film, just to branch out and vice versa. If you've only ever done films, try a theater piece just to see the other side of it, get a new perspective. Because sometimes when you're stuck in your bubble, and this can be said for a lot of different things, yeah. stuck in your bubble, you learn how to do one thing exclusively, and you can't like broaden it out and find something new and get really good at something. Yeah, I, yeah, I could not agree with you more. I, you know, I never thought I'd ever do film. I was like very content to be a Shakespeare nerd my whole life, and I did a web series. Um, two three years ago now again I don't know what time is but um it was, so it was my first time really like doing anything on camera and I was just like oh shit first of all it's fun it's so different than the theater but it's fun and I'm learning so much you know the repetition of like doing scenes multiple times it's sort of like being in a, in a rehearsal process but it's it's not it, it's you know, I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but it was like, definitely like, I was like, I'm learning so much about myself as a performer by doing it this way. And by kind of feeling like I have no idea what I'm doing, but doing it anyway, by like trusting that like, well, you know your lines, you know what you need, you know what you want, you know that your scene partner in this scene has your back and is fucking badass. And you know that the director is a badass and you know that they trust you. So like, put both feet in and fucking do the shit, which is like, even though I feel more competent and comfortable, comfortable uh, on stage, I think that there's still like a, there's still sometimes a hesitation, which I think holds me back. And there's something about doing film for the first time that made me be like, the camera picks up everything. You can't hesitate. You either go for it or you don't. Um, and I think that was, for me at least, a very important thing to learn. Yeah. I think yeah. the also, hybrid of, of theater and film acting is video games, uh -huh. like mocapping, because they mm. do wide shots, but also close-ups at the same time. So you have to be moving your body in such That's a way cool. that's important for usually for theater and accentuating and doing things. But then your facial performance has to be on point as well, because they're also doing close-ups. So it's a weird hybrid. Yeah, that's really cool. I never thought of it that way before. Although I'm sure, I don't know if you talked to Tim at all about this stuff when you guys chatted, but that's like right up his. Video games too much when we spoke to Tim. We're doing callback now uh, to episode five. If you haven't watched our podcast all the way through, and this is the first one you're watching. Go back and watch Tim's as well. Um, because he's like he's a video game nerd, and I think it would be like his dream to get to do a, a video game like that. Um, I'm on board with that. <laughs> I think it'd be really cool. Us, we're all going to team up now. That's a team of four right there. Red Dead Redemption 3. What's <laughs> happening? So, uh, just so we're all aware, we have four and a half minutes left on this. Okay. So we'll be talking, but we'll probably have to stop and yeah. come back. But um, so Mocha, what's next for Girl Gang Productions? You guys have completed cuts. 
Uh -huh. Done with post. So what's the next one? Or my phone could call and do that on my computer. <laughs> so Malka, what are the uh, next steps then for Girl Gang Productions? You've, you've finished post for Klutz, so what's... Mm -hmm. So the next is the film festival circuit for Klutz, fingers crossed, hopefully. Um, and who knows what that's really going to look like in the future. Um, and then afterwards, I don't, I don't really know. I think, um, I think I'd have a better idea if, you know, I was not confined to my home, like the rest of the world. Um, I think, you know, we're designed to be both a film and a theater company to produ produce both. Um, and I think that like, what I was hoping to do or what I had chatted with some people about doing was potentially doing like um, a reading night, a couple of different plays written by women, um, just like as we, uh, you know, uh, music stand readings, um, you know, potentially to raise money for charity, um, as well as, you know, like a 50-50, like, you know, some of the money comes to the company and then some of the money goes to rain or something. Um, I'm, I'm okay. very, productions doing something like that doing a reading on like zoom mm -hmm. saying like oh if you want to see this film get made eventually you know drop a drop 10 bucks in our fundraiser or something like that so that's, that's really clever yeah i think i think yes i think that that would be that like if we're still confined in like three months from now i think that that's probably what we'll do is something like that um i i've been writing a lot recently um and I wrote a pilot episode, which I don't think Girl Gang Production could produce on its own, um, but I'd love to try. I'd love to see what, ha what would happen, um, even if it's just like a, you know, 20 minute teaser of, of the full pilot or something. Um, but yeah, I think right now we're very focused on film submissions to the Festival Network, which is, you know, the secret, the secret to what's happening right now is that I'm 100% learning as I'm going. So when we were filming, I was learning about cameras for the first time. I went to pick up the lenses and the place that we rented the lenses from was like three blocks from my apartment. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to walk there and I'm going to walk them back. And then I get like, like 60 pound box of lenses. And I was just like, oh yeah. And I got them home and I walked them home and I felt like a badass, but it was like one of those like really like, smack yourself on the head. How am I just learning this now moment? Um, and so it's just like every step of the way I've been learning. And so now with the film festival circuit, I'm, I'm learning about how that works. And I'm learning what, which ones are like worth your money and which ones are good for shorts and, and trying to learn about how it's going to work in a changing world. Um, when networking is such a big part of, of them, like how are film festivals going to work when you can't network in person? how a film festival is gonna work when you can't talk to somebody who might become a future collaborator. Like, how is that all gonna work? And I, have, I certainly don't have the answers, but I'm excited to like sort of delve into that and delve into how Girl Gang Productions can be a part of that. Um, and then, yeah, I know so many lady writers in the world right now who are, who are writing and who need a platform for their work. And I hope that whether it's via Zoom readings or fingers crossed via in-person readings and filming that, you know, in the next 
six months will be a place for people to go and be like, hey, read our script and we'll be able to go like, this is like an awesome. How do we make this work? Can we make this work? So Malka, we ask, obviously we ask all our day players and guests to suggest a film for us to watch. Um, and you suggested Titanic, this classic, classic film. So tell us why, why did you suggest this film? Honestly, I don't know. It was the first thing that came to my mind when you were like, tell us a movie you could talk about because I love Titanic. Uh, unashamedly, unabashedly, um, I fucking think it's the shit. I think people like to shit on it now, and I think that that is wrong, because I think it's a great movie. Um, I, so I saw it in theaters at like the age of seven, or thereabouts, and it was magic. It was truly magic. Um, and uh, I don't want to generalize, but I think for a lot of uh, artists, humans in our generation, it was the first like really big cinematic thing that we saw maybe in theaters uh we were like just at that age where it was like okay to see a pg-13 movie in theaters like it was such a big deal that parents were taking younger kids even though it was like risque because it has actually like the least graphic sex scene of all time um but i was obsessed with it um as a kid like obsessed not just with the movie, but with the story of the Titanic. It's sort of, I saw it and it like spurred me on this like journey. Um, like there was a time where I could answer literally any question you had about the Titanic, where it was made, what metal they used, who the this was, who the that was, how they identified John Jacob Astor's body, because he had diamonds sewn into his suit. Uh, like I knew everything, everything. Uh, about the Titanic and about how they made the movie. And I think maybe in some ways that's like a, that's a testament to what storytelling is about. It's not supposed to, you, you don't just go see something and you go like, sounds cool. And then you forget about it 20 minutes later. It should spark something in you. It should make you leave the theater and go, that was fucking terrible. But it should make you think about why it was terrible or it should make you go, that was really fucking good. And it should make you think about why it was really fucking good and it should, and it should linger. The story should linger in, in some way, I, I think. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I just think that, like, it was such a highly rated movie when it first came out. And I feel like now it's, like, sort of, like, taken, like, a dive and is, like, now underrated. And I don't know why people like to shit on it, but people like to shit on it. Uh, I don't, I don't wanna, think that either. Uh, I don't think that it's underrated or people are, like, shitting on it now. I think it's just because they're, like, so in love with Leonardo DiCaprio they're like he could have fit on the door he could have done it he could have just climbed up on the door he would have been fine both would have been fine he would have had a happy end but no Rose had to sprawl out and just take over the whole door that's true but then I pose this question to you well I guess it is possible for that to have happened why do we feel the need for a happy ending why, why, are, why so often do we see a movie and the thing that we focus on is, well, this could have made the ending different in a positive or not a positive light, but a happier ending. And I think much more with American cinema and than like European cinema, let's say, like, I feel like we do have this, like, we crave that happy ending. We don't want to cry at the end. We don't want to focus on the fact that like, Rose was a fucking badass lady who went on to have an amazing life 
we don't focus on that. We focus on the fact that like, oh, poor sexy Leonardo DiCaprio is dead and how is she ever gonna have a good life without the man who taught her how to have a good life? Whereas I'd like to think that like, it's the opposite, right? She had an amazing life because she was self-sufficient and she didn't need him in that way. It's sad, I cry every time I see it, I cry like ugly ugly tears like <laughs> silent ugly tears because I don't want to wake my husband up but like I don't know I, I just wonder why we need that happy ending why we can't I don't know quite what I'm trying to say but like why why is it so difficult for us to process painful endings and then on top of that why why isn't her life a happy ending I think that she experienced great heartache, heartache that we all shared with her. But ultimately she rose, lived a very full, amazing life. Lived to be a um, Lived to be a hundred. Yeah. Rode horses. Like all those photos suggest she did like just amazing fucking shit for a woman in her time. For a woman in today's time. And we're all like, could have fit on the door I feel like that's I get it it's funny and like she 100% could have made room for him but I kind of feel like that misses the, the point a, a little maybe I, I think that and I, I agree with you about the the happy ending syndrome <laughs> I, and I think I like that I, happy ending syndrome well that's exactly what it is because um yeah I since um since you were in scar tissue, the script has changed and it's not mm -hmm. a happy ending for everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't think it necessarily was when you were in it, but it's much less of a everything tied up in a bow. Yeah, and yeah. My mother flat out said when she came to the last live presentation of why why don't Jess and Jack end up yeah. together at the end? I was like, that's the point. And it's the same with um, my fiance Nick's script. It doesn't end all nice and happy. And everyone, that's like the first comment that people always have. And I think a lot of it comes from, we go to movies and a lot, most people go to movies and theater and plays and everything and escape from things and escape mm -hmm. from the happy life totally. the happy endings. So when theater or film or a story does push push the boundaries a bit for you when you, all you want is an escape from, you know, you mm. want the romance to, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. end up with Leo DiCaprio because you're picturing yourself ending up with Leo DiCaprio, you know, like that. Of course. <laughs> That's absolutely where it all comes from. But I, I love your perspective on the end of Titanic. And I fell into the trap too of why couldn't Leo live? And it's so sad. I mean, me too, me too. <laughs> but um. I mean, valid point of like she did she got married to a wonderful man that she loved and she had a great life with or with like whether she did that stuff with her husband or not and did her stuff on her own and I think that's great and valid and yeah. wonderful I just I think like you know just to bring it back to like the lady female experience I think that like our I think uh, this is going to get a little bit rambly before I get to like what I'm trying to say but I think that like, it's twofold. Um, I think we want women 
in our stories, and I and I feel this way too, and I sometimes have to fight myself. We we want them to end up with the love of their lives. We want to we want to believe that that is the ultimate goal, right? Like you watch the notebook, they end up together, and you're like, fuck yeah. And then you think about like all like all the other things she could have been, all the other things she might have done. Um, I mean, she did amazing things, but she would have done amazing things anyway. And not that that's a different story. We're allowed to have the notebooks and the other princessy movies, whatever, I don't know. I can't think of examples off the top of my head. Um, we can have that, we should have that. But I think that like, especially when girls are young and we watch these movies and we see that the happy ending always ends when the man is like, we should be together. And you're like, that's my goal for my life. All of the narratives, all the stories we watch are teaching girls that the ultimate goal is to find a man and settle down. And that the happiness of their life is dependent on that. And I think that that's changing right now. I think that there's more variety in these stories and in these narratives. But I think that that, especially at least when I think when we were growing up, that was a big part of, of the film that I watched was the Disney princess syndrome as twer. Like, and, and I think that I, while I think that there's a place for those stories and I love those stories, like I, I love a good rom-com, like straight up. I, I like, if it's well-written and they have good chemistry, I'm like all about that shit and I will rewatch it. But I think that there's such a danger in that being the predominant narrative that we're teaching girls is that Leonardo DiCaprio needs to live and her life needs to revolve around that. Um, whereas I think Titanic was sort of ahead of its time, probably not realizing that it was, by giving her this other ending, by being like, she lost everything. She lost the love of her life, who turns out maybe not to be the love of her life if she was happily married afterwards. She lost her family. She lost her wealth. She lost everything that society tells a woman is what gives her her place in the world, right? She's standing in the middle of this crowded room, screaming at the top of her lungs, and nobody's looking up. And nobody's looking up because there's nothing wrong with the picture to anybody else. This is exactly what it means to be a woman. And she goes on to live a, a life that she literally has to start on her own. Everything, I mean, everything she gets from career to husband, to like all of that comes from her self-determination and her and her ability to pull herself up and I feel like those are the stories and sometimes that's not going to end well and that's okay too but I feel like those are stories that are important for young girls to be seeing and I feel like perhaps unaware at the time because I was seven um and I was more focused on being like mom why didn't you close my eyes in the sex scene um than I was on like the <laughs> the profound effect the ending would have on me. But I feel like Titanic both gave us this like epic love story and told me that a woman doesn't need to have the epic love story to be successful. And that success is about more than your relationship to a man. Um, that was very long-winded. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> um, sometimes, sometimes I have like a little soapbox and I, you know, but I, I, think, that, but I think that's why I make movies is because I want, I well, want to help girls. Find the box for people to stand on. 
Thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I, um, I if you love rom-coms where it's not about that, have you ever seen Little Black Book with Brittany Murphy? Yes. That film made me angry at the time that I watched it because she doesn't end up with the guy mm -hmm. at the end. But then I couldn't stop watching it. Like I couldn't, like every time it was on TV, I was like, I have to watch this film, even though it made me angry that she didn't end up with the guy at the end. She still, she ended up focusing on her career and getting what she wanted. And I think that's why it makes me so angry that Rachel gets off the plane at the end of Friends. <laughs> I have not oh, seen that, so I can't comment, but I understand. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I was recently watching, it was a different Brittany Murphy rom-com. Um, and we have to go back and rewatch Little Black Book. Um, but it was, oh, it was the one with Dakota Fanning, or is it Elle Fanning? And she ends up, like, having to take care of her. She's, like, all, like, princessy because, like, her parents were, like, famous musicians. Oh, yeah, 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 um, yeah. Uh, I know which one you're talking about. I don't remember the name, but it was Brittany Murphy with, with Dakota Fanning. I think it was Dakota Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the male lead is the, like, Aussie doctor from House the blonde hair, very attractive. Okay. Uh -huh. And I was just, I didn't watch the whole film, but I don't, oh, I was watching it at Dry Bar. Um, I feel like that's relevant to the story somehow. And, <laughs> um, and I was just watching it. I was watching how he was treating her at the beginning of the film, right? They have like one night together. And then he's like, my career is more important and I can't focus on you. And she's calling him and she's calling him and he's not responding until eventually she like ends up on the street like below his like fire escaping like hello and he's like oh i guess you can come up now and again i haven't seen the ending in a very very long time so i don't know how it ends but i just remember watching this being like we're supposed to like him we're supposed to like them together and he's and we're supposed to be judging her for not having her life together while he's the one who's at least focusing on his career. And I'm like, there's something so wrong with this. Mm -hmm. First of all, a woman does not have to have her life together to be strong, to be empowered. A woman does not, like, why, are, why is that what we, why can't a woman be flawed and we still respect her? That's one. Two, he's treating her like garbage. He's treating her like hot, steaming garbage and I'm just thinking about like how 12 year old Malko to watch and been like but you know, but, oh, you know they're gonna end up together and like and then that's how, how like how we are in our relationships like texting and are we crazy for continuing to, like and I just feel like again story is how we learn empathy right film is how so many of us learn empathy and how are we as, as, as ladies supposed to learn empathy for ourselves when the women that we're told to admire are, are treated like shit and we're told that that's okay and that's just part of the process. Um, is the movie that we're talking about, is that Uptown Girls? Is that what it is? Yes, I think so. Yeah. And I will, I will go back and, yeah, that's it. There you go. That's it. Reference me. And we watch it to make sure the ending doesn't tell a totally different story and I've gotten on a high horse for nothing. Um, but like, I don't know. 
and like in the notebook he's like hanging off the the, the wheel and we're like oh that's so romantic when i'm like that's actually called emotional manipulation and not cool <laughs> yeah. if a woman says no she says no and i mean like there's obviously there's room and there's variance and blah 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 yuck, i guess i don't mean to shit on like Shit on all, shit on it all, because I got a lot out of all of it. Yeah. But I just, I don't know. No, just I food for thought. completely agree with you. We I think it would be way better if Ryan Gosling fell off the Ferris wheel. <laughs> yeah, there what happened? And she's just gonna be like, "You asked for it. That's what <laughs> you right? I don't feel bad for you yeah. at all." <laughs> Hello down there. Goodbye down there. Well, Malka, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing you. Girl Gang Productions. We're going to put all your links and everything uh, connected to the podcast so people can find you, learn more about uh, Klutz, get details about that as that starts to come out. Um, and just thank you again. We really enjoyed having you on. Thank you. This is a blast. And I so rarely get to ramble to people who aren't Kim about my feelings about <laughs> narrative and ladies so thank you for the the opportunity to share to share and yeah they're awesome well thank you to malka for joining us today and sharing with us girl gang productions and all of that stuff that they have going on and for suggesting titanic so let's talk about titanic sure i mean it is one of the biggest movies of all time and that's not even an exaggeration we're talking a movie where in 1997, it had the highest budget for a movie ever up until that point. $200 million was their budget, which is a lot now. It's a lot today. And that's, we're talking to, when you say 200 million, we're talking like the biggest blockbuster movies that come out, like Avengers, Endgame, where they spent millions and millions to just put people on camera. Like Robert Downey Jr.'s salary is like 30 million. And it's an absurd amount of money. But when you watch Titanic, you really get the vibe that like used, they used every dollar to make it look real. Um, they did a lot of really cool stuff with miniatures, which I think we should talk about a little bit because that's really interesting. But let's also talk about the budget for this film, the scale of this film, $200 million and their box office takeaway was so worth it. Because <laughs> ima imagine being like, we're going to spend $200 million about a boat sinking. And we're going to make $2.1 billion on it, which is absurd. It's absurd how much money they made. But like, it was the most, it was the highest grossing movie ever all the way up until 2010, where James Cameron, who made Titanic and broke all the records, comes back and hits us again with Avatar and breaks his own record. That had to be the best feeling, where he's like, who can beat me? Only me. Only well, me. I have to say, I ended up um, I'm very much like Malka in that that film definitely sparked an interest in all things Titanic for me. Um, it came out when I was in fourth grade, and that again was like the first PG thirteen film I was allowed to see in the in the theater. And after that, I bought um, these this 
they had these books for girls. Um, I forget what they were called, but it was almost like diary entries of different women through different times. And one of them was a, a girl who got passage on Titanic as like the uh, maid to a rich American woman. So it was literally about the whole sinking. And then there was this amazing point and click video game called Titanic Adventure Out of Time which I'm still obsessed with to this day, and I'm very upset that I cannot play. I will watch replays of that game on YouTube. That's how much There's I love a that. Titanic video game? Tell me it's like people jumping out of a boat to their death, and you have to like catch them in a lifeboat. <laughs> That's not it. <laughs> you actually are a um, agent for the uh, British intelligence, and you are trying to stop World War I. Um, it's really interesting, but... I, I, now I forget the point that I was going on. I went on such a tangent with all of the things Titanic. Oh, but recently over um, quarantine, especially at the beginning, I was getting back into all of these old things that I loved, including that video game, which then sparked, re-sparked all the Titanic stuff. So I watched this documentary about James Cameron and it's Titanic 20 years later and him kind of trying to figure out all the things they got wrong and right in the film from the things that they had to guess. Because James Cameron does a ridiculous amount of research to get his work as accurate as possible. Yeah, um, it should be said that while he was working on Titanic, like 1997, he had already been years into planning and writing for Avatar that didn't come out until 2010. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he said multiple times that he'd been working on that movie for 15 years. And I know that for Titanic, I don't know how long he'd been working on it before that came out, but he did a lot of research into like sinking ships and all these things that you need to know. Isn't his next movie supposed to be in like space and he's actually going to film it in space? I, I didn't hear that, but Such if it's James Cameron, honestly, that wouldn't surprise me. But he made multiple trips to the Titanic uh, crash site underground or underwater he and there were so many things like the stateroom that they they built for uh rose was he was kind of doing that based on guesses from the from the crash site um and things that he knew at the time and now years later they found so much more evidence and so many more things and he found out that he was actually extremely accurate in the way that they designed the stateroom um, so it's just really interesting to see how much effort and thought and research um, that he put into getting this film to be as historically accurate as possible. And he also talked about a lot of the things that he got incorrect and like survivors of Titanic either praised him for, or like the family of survivors at this point, either praised him for or got really upset with him about. Wow. Uh, name one, just one of them. So the um, first officer, Murdoch, was a real person. Um, but what they did was they kind of took Mur Murdoch and a bunch of rumors about officers and how they handled the sinking and merged them into one character on the ship. So the storyline of Murdoch shooting and killing a passenger while that was trying to get on the lifeboat and then taking his own life and shooting himself and falling into the water, that is not 
historically accurate to what the actual person Murdoch did. That's a rumor mm. about what one of the officers did. And so when that film came out, the descendants from Officer Murdoch were not happy with that portrayal, obviously. Yeah. Easy fix would have been to just make up a name for that guy. And just... Well, and that's, that's what he said he should have done. Yeah. Um, he took responsibility for that and said he should have done that if he wanted to include that that dramatic storyline into it. Yeah, that's the craziest thing about this movie is that it happened. It was a real thing. And when you when you look it up online, people describe it as a romance, of course, first, because of obviously with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, but they also describe it, its secondary genre is a disaster movie. And when you think disaster movie, you think like 2012 or the day after tomorrow or something. You don't think Titanic, but it really is like, like she gets drawn, like draw me like one of your French girls. Everything after that is fucking crazy. Boats start exploding, shit's flying all over the place, literally sinking to the bottom of the ocean, freezing to death. Like that's all disaster movie type stuff with like romance snuck in there. Uh, the first half of the film is definitely the romance heavy portion because it just shows how quickly they're falling in love with, with with each other but it's also super dramatic they, they meet she's trying to jump off the back of the ship and just kill herself which is insane uh mm -hmm. but basically she feels trapped in this in this life rose rose feels traps trapped in this life and in this marriage she doesn't want to have and decides i'm gonna just jump off the back of this boat which by the way is no small jump that is like, we're talking about jumping off a four-story building. That's how tall the Titanic was, I think. Just, we're talking hundreds of feet, at least. Um, and, you know, just a crazy way to start that meeting between Jack and Rose. And mm -hmm. they wind up meeting, they become super friendly, and they're hanging out. You immediately see the chemistry between them. Um, I think this movie would have been very different if anyone else would have been cast in either of these roles. Because wasn't oh, yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio, wasn't he like a last minute choice? They had someone else. I don't know if he was a last minute choice or not. I know I, he, I don't know if to this day, I, it's again, Hollywood rumors and things like that. I don't, um, that he regretted taking the role. Um, does he really? Again, rumor, don't know. But it also paired him with Kate Winslet, who they've become incredible friends and hugely supportive of each other. So if he hadn't done that film, I don't know, you know, if, if that working friendship and relationship would have, you know, survived. Yeah, I mean, probably not. Um, it would have existed. Yeah. I'm looking it up now. But Here are the gents in one way or another had a shot at portraying Jack. Christian Bale, Billy Crudup, Johnny Depp. I think Johnny Depp was the biggest one. That's what I heard. Uh, Brad Pitt, Stephen Dorff. That would have been weird. Matthew McConaughey, Chris O'Donnell, River Phoenix, and Macaulay Culkin. Those were all in consideration for playing Jack. That would have been wild. <laughs> that would have been so much more. Uh, that was, would have still been a classic movie, but for very different reasons. 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, the cast could have been anybody. And I think at the time, Leonardo DiCaprio was, he was known, but he wasn't the biggest actor in the world. So I, I mean, he, he had done some really big films. I mean, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, and um, I think The Man in the Iron Mask, I think, had come out before all this. So, like, he definitely was a solid, big name. But he, this actually pushed him over the edge. It made him not only, like, a legitimate, you know, he it added the whole heartthrob status to him, which he was already getting from being on, like, Growing Pains and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah when he was a teenager, but um, did Titanic come out before or after Romeo and Juliet? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know. Romeo because and Juliet. the combination of those two films, I think maybe that might be one of the reasons why oh, that he regretted taking the role. Um, it definitely, pigeonholed him for a little bit into, you know, heartthrob, only do romantic lead status. But also those two films are very different from like romantic comedies, so. Romeo and Juliet release date, 96. So mm. literally he does Romeo and Juliet, then a year later, Titanic happens, and then he's the heartthrob from then on out. Yep. You know what I wanna watch now? having just seen Titanic a couple days ago, Django, <laughs> where he played a crazy racist plantation owner. That, that's a whole flip of the script. Or, or Wolf of Wall Street. You know, just totally opposite. Yeah, um, I mean, there is no denying that he is an incredible, incredible actor. Yeah, um, the man's got range. But so does Kate Winslet. Yes, she does. Responsible for this film being as successful as it was. Yeah, I was surprised too with the amount of lines. Everybody remembers, paint me like one of your French girls. Everybody remembers that line. But I was surprised how many times someone said something in the movie and I go, huh, that's like a pop culture thing now. Like I remember that line so many times. It's, it's crazy how, you know, how every line of this movie is almost quotable. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, when the movie came out, it obviously, you know, it was huge. It was groundbreaking. It was such a phenomenon of, um, you know, the visual effects and the acting and the story, the length of the film. You know, long films like that hadn't really been in, in fashion for a really long time. Um, and then, and you know, the music, the score is beautiful. It's hard now because you were so inundated then afterwards with all stuff Titanic. Literally with, you know, the uh, My Heart Will Go On played on the radio all the time. <laughs> and they also had, um, you know, at the time they would put uh, clips from the film and when they played it on the radio, they did the same thing with the, whatever the big song to come out of Jerry Maguire was. They had, you know, Renee Zellweger saying, you had me a hello. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, everything became so inundated that now you just hear, you know, you hear those chords or, and you're automatically like, oh, Titanic, which is a real disservice to the film because it, I think we just got oversaturated with it, unfortunately. Yeah, 
I think that's why for years and years, th this is one of those movies you should watch once every 10 years. Maybe. Yeah. Because every 10 years you'll kind of forget and you won't really remember. And don't listen to the song over and over again because then you'll just have it in your head. But it, it's, like you said, it right upon its release received critical and commercial success. Nominated for 14 Academy Awards, it tied All About Eve from 1950 in the most Oscar nominations and then won 11 of them, which includes the awards for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Picture and Best Director. It tied Ben-Hur for the most Oscars won by a single film. So that's insane, 11. What Was it Lord of the Rings that eventually came in and like started beating that? Because I'm pretty sure they got like 13 or 14 Oscars out of the first movie or the second movie or something. But... I digress. We'll talk about Lord of the Rings when somebody suggests it, please, because that's a that's a whole journey. Um, we need three guests back to back, right? Three day players. One comes on and says, I want to do the Fellowship of the Ring. And I'll be like, great. And then the next guest, I'm going to be like, do the two towers. Do the two towers, please. And then the next guest, Return of the King. I'll be like, yes, here we go, guys. We're going to line that up. It's going to happen now. Uh, initially, the movie Titanic grossed $1.84 billion, which is insanity, because that's not even today's money. That's 1997 $1.8 billion, because that's mind-blowing. Um, it became the highest-grossing film ever until James Cameron beat his own record in 2010. But then he decided, hey, let's take it a step further and do a 3D release of Titanic that came into theaters in 3D. And they remastered it for 4K, re-released in 2012, and made even more money. And that's what pushed it up to $2.194 billion. Well, they wanted to release it on what, the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, so it came out in 2012. Um, was it 1912 that that's when the boat sunk? Wow. April 14th. Uh, that's pretty wild. Um, and I think in 2017, the movie was also re-released again for the 20th anniversary of the film. And it's also now selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. That thing is, needs to, if there's like a, what do you call it, a time capsule? There's a time capsule. You got to throw Titanic in the time capsule for just like movies or just stuff, art, because let, let's start talking about the actual production of this movie, because some of the stuff that they do is mind blowing. And the, the concept of miniatures, I think, was at its peak when this movie came out, because they made miniature versions of the Titanic big versions too, like model ships the size of people, but not right. the actual boat. Um, but at no point was I watching this and thinking, oh man, these effects aren't up to snuff. What's up? Uh, there's one point where a guy jumps off the back of the ship and he doesn't jump far enough and he hits the propeller and his body spins out real quick. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> that's some ragdoll effects right there. That was tough. I think a person really did that can't imagine you had the CGI back then to make that look real. I don't know. Probably. I don't know. Stunt people are crazy. They'd be like, throw me off, man. 
I'm not saying a stunt person would have wanted to do that practical effect, but they didn't, ha I don't know that they had a, a like a life-size model of the ship for them to jump off of. Life-size, no, but what they did was they had a 50-foot platform that they built, and that platform could be adjusted and moved so that they could have people sliding across it super quick and being pulled on ropes and stuff could be falling so that when they're simulating when the Titanic ship is up here and then it cracks, you know, all those things can be simulated on this 50-foot platform with the people and everything where like the priest is holding the thing and he's holding all the people that are praying. That was all being acted out on a, slope, on a sloped platform so that it could feel real for the actors and they could feel like, oh, we're gonna fall. So they had a scale model of like that portion of the deck while they were filming those scenes. Right. But of course they aren't able to build a massive ship, but when you couple those shots with miniatures and you couple the miniatures with green screen technology, you can film the shots of people jumping off the boat by filming somebody on a green screen and then just putting that in the miniatures shot. And that's what I think brought it all to life, made it all look real, blew my mind a little bit. I, the, it, the film is just fantastic from beginning to end. It's wonderful storytelling. It's amazing, you know, cinema magic, you know, to make you believe that you are literally watching a, the actual ship and the actual sinking. And um, I think a big part of that too, good credits, goes to the older woman who's the older version of Rose at the beginning. I forgot about that entirely. So watching this movie back, I was like, oh wait, who is this? Why is this in present day? Am I watching the right movie? Then I remembered, oh, this is when Rose, after the fact, is telling the story of it. So that's what takes us through it. And she comes back a couple times with some narration and we get pulled back into the present day story a little bit. And I think that adds a lot to this story because it kind of makes you feel like part of it, but not really. You're really a part of the present day world and you can be part of the crew that's involved or you can actually be there. It's, I don't know. It, it felt very immersive. You feel very involved with it. Oh, yeah. Well, and yeah, it's funny that the ending where she drops the, the uh, necklace back into the ocean, um, they had two different endings filmed for that. One where she decides to just go off and do it herself, which is the one that made it into the film. There's also one where they, uh, the crew catches her doing it. And they've been searching for this part of the ocean necklace for years. Um, and they, they watch her just put it back in the ocean because that's where it belongs. Um, and so that was, I'm, it, interested to know why they decided to uh, choose one over the other. I think they made the right choice um, in doing it that way, because there was already enough drama <laughs> in the rest of the story. I'm looking it up, and they say that, they say at some point in the movie that it's worth more than the Hope Diamond. Mm -hmm. So the Hope Diamond is worth $350 million. So if if this jewel, this heart of the ocean necklace diamond was real, it would be worth more than that significantly, they said too. Like it would have been worth probably $500 million. So 
I think that ending would have been really powerful too if they had shown the crew who had been hunting for it just by hearing her story like letting her throw it away and like because it's very easy to be like no hundred year old woman give me that necklace thank you and that's <laughs> it <laughs> end of story but it's I think it's her and it's her necklace it's her story so I think if you involve the crew who are just onlookers at that point it takes away from the fact that it's her thing yeah and it's also, it makes it more personal with just her. It's almost like she's like, here, Jack, hang on to this for me. I'll see you in a bit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then at the very end, I liked it too when she lays down in the bed and she's like, now she, she gave the diamond away or she gave it back to the ocean. And it was almost like she's coming back because then it was like dream sequence where you're like, did she die? Is this, is this her going to heaven? quote unquote and now she's back on the titanic and everybody's there all the faces familiar faces that went down with the ship and and what's his name jack is at the top of the stairs i was like oh did she die <laughs> oh no but she looks and but she you know it's she did everything that jack said that they were going to do together or that she was going to do you know she did uh, as you pan by the pictures and you see she did ride a horse with one leg on each side instead of side saddle and she you know she passed away peacefully in her sleep which is what jack wanted for her when he realized he wasn't going to make it um so you know i i think that was an, a beautiful ending to the romance part of it part of the story yeah i think too we were talking about with malka how it doesn't necessarily have a happy ending because jack dies and they don't end up together but I think in the end, it really does have a happy ending. It's, I think it's a matter of perspective. Of course, yeah. there's 500 people in the ocean freezing to death around you. It doesn't look like a happy ending. But yeah. in the end, for Rose, she really was probably the one person on that boat that had a happy ending. My question was always, coming out of this movie, I was always like, does she ever see her mom again? That's all I wanted to know. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It's so heartbreaking to watch her mother in this film because she's part of it is, you know, her not wanting to lose her status in society. And, you know, she doesn't know life any other way. And she's forcing her daughter into this marriage with this guy who, you know, is an asshole. Um, but, you know, he doesn't present that way. You know, he's just this charming guy to everybody else. Um, but to see oh, yeah. her come get huh Billy Zane Billy Zane yeah um who was perfect in that role uh but you know you see her and you know you see everybody kind of just say fuck it to all like the norms of things and the way life is supposed to be when they realize like their lives are in jeopardy the lives of the people they love are in jeopardy um and I I don't know I'm I'm kind of upset that you do never know if she saw her mom again. Yeah, I think that's crazy because I couldn't imagine, because I think the mom kind of realizes that once they're on the boat, all none of it matters. The status of it doesn't matter. And the one woman that stands up and on her boat and says, we have to go back for those people. Oh my God, we can help them. And they all kind of shut her up. And they're like, if we go back, we're gonna die. It shows that like only one boat goes back for people and they only saved six people out of the, what, what was it, 1,500 that 
were stuck in the ocean. They got like 700 people on the boats, on the lifeboats, um, or something like that. Not enough. They only had so many boats. Well, but you know what's funny though? One of the things from that documentary with James Cameron was, you know, the whole thing, there's, you know, for years, if only they had put more lifeboats, they would have saved more people. James Cameron didn't necessarily believe that premise. So one in that uh, documentary that I watched where he was testing all his theories to see what was right and what was wrong, they actually had a replica lifeboat and they did the whole prepping the lifeboat to be lowered into the water. And they wanted to time it out to see how long it took because the Titanic from the time it hit the iceberg to the time it completely sank was like two hours. So doing the math in how long it took to set up a lifeboat, even if they had enough lifeboats and filled them all to capacity, they wouldn't have done it in time. Those yeah. lifeboats were way too long to... Because we're talking about 2,500 people or so. Is that how the general amount of people on the Titanic, I believe, is what they said? Yeah. That's a city. That's a, that's a city. That's a small city, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a small city. The city of Atlantis just going underground, going underwater. That's basically what happened. So imagine 2,500 people, which is like a stadium of people. Just, you got two hours to get out. And yeah. also, by the way, when you get out, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> there's, there's nowhere to get out to, because it's all yeah. just ice cold, freezing water that, according to Jack, feels like daggers all over your body. That's how cold it is, uh, which is insane. I mean, we've all been cold, but no one has ever been that fucking cold. I have not, and I really don't want to be. Yeah, I'm. It's the same reason I don't want to go ice fishing. It's because I don't need to be that cold. I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I'm all right. Um, it's one of those movies too that they don't they don't hide the perspectives of all the different people. I think that was really cool to kind of, when, when they had the high society dinner and then Jack was like, come party on my side of the boat. It shows the vastness of the boat too, where you can literally go to like a different town and there's a whole other group of people partying and dancing and jumping on tables. And it's totally unregistered or even unaware by all the rich people that are on the other side of the boat doing a whole different thing it shows how crazy the amount of people on this boat was and yeah. how worse everything was. Mm -hmm. it, it's a classic film um, that at this point, I think we're, we're just far enough away from it from when it was made that we're starting to probably be able to reappreciate it again. It just became such a huge phenomenon. It's so cliche at the time because it was so overdone and the you know the market was so saturated with everything titanic um that yeah it it just became cheesy but now you know if people give it enough time and go back to it i really think that they'll find how much they loved it in the first place you know yeah for those of you if you haven't seen it in a long time it's and for even those of you that are like, ah, romantic, like romantic movies I'm not super into, stick with it. Because, <laughs> at, because uh, like for, just from the guy, the male perspective, 
you're watching this movie and you're like, all right, I, I get it. Like, they're in love. Oh, my God. And then all of a sudden, you get to see some boobs. And then from then on, it's an action movie where people are jumping off of boats and stuff's blowing up. And it's crazy. It's violent. They're sneaking in moments of romance in between the drownings. So from the from the male perspective that you just want to see explosions and stuff, it's got it. It's got a little bit of everything. Okay. Don't, on, don't do it. Don't you do it. I'm going to say on that note, I'm going to go to the end of it. No. The male perspective is, is fine. Okay? I, I love that we spent most of this podcast talking about female empowerment and we get to the end and it's hey guys stick with it because after the romance you get boobs and a lot of death and action <laughs> i didn't look you get both that's what's crazy about this movie is that it's also not only do you get explosions and boats sinking and action and boobs but there's also female empowerment which is insane. It's a hard feat to accomplish to get both. That it is. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning in to the AFC podcast. Again, you can watch us on YouTube. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We're also on CastBox. Um, and uh, thank you, Malka, for joining us today and sharing all of her upcoming projects and making us rehash the classic Titanic. Uh, for the AFC Podcast, my name is Victoria Fragnito. I'm Jim Galizia. Thank you guys for tuning in. We will see you next time. <laughs>